0: Chapter 6. Conclusion Section 1. Economics and the Moral Order of Creation There are essentially two kinds of argument for a form of the economy, as outlined in the previous chapter. First, there is the moral argument. The Bible requires that in all economic transactions, just weights and measures should be used. Leviticus 19, verses 35-37 Deuteronomy 25 verses 13 to 16. These laws are direct and admit of no extenuating circumstances in which they can be set aside. To break them is to sin against God and injure one's neighbour. Biblical ethics demands that those who transgress these laws should make restitution to their victims, that is to say, restore what was stolen or the value of what was stolen, plus compensation of between a fifth and five times the value of what was stolen, depending on the nature of the crime. Exodus 22, verse 1, verses 7 to 9, Leviticus 6, verses 1 to 5, Numbers 5, verses 6 and 7. In principle, the Bible also forbids multiple indebtedness. Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27. Furthermore, the Bible does not permit the state to exact a tithe, that is, a tenth of increase from its citizens. The taxes it raises must therefore be less than a tenth of the increase. God takes the tithe, a tenth of the increase. For the state to take a tenth is to claim equality with God. For to take more than a tenth is to claim that its jurisdiction over man is superior to God's. The most that the state may legitimately take, therefore, is a second tithe, a tenth of the remainder of the increase after the deduction of the first tithe. Which belongs to God, First Samuel eight and nine. Compare Deuteronomy seventeen verses fourteen to twenty. Moreover, the state may not tithe or tax inheritance, nor assume the power of eminent domain, without incurring the wrath of God, First Kings twenty one. The power and authority of the state is thus very limited in the Bible. Its function being that of administering public justice, Romans thirteen verses one to six. In short. From the biblical perspective, the state has neither sovereign power nor sovereign jurisdiction over the nation. Sovereignty belongs to God alone, and all power and authority vested in the state, as in the church and family, is limited and governed by God's word. The moral argument for the reforms set out above is thus very strong. Secondly, there are economic arguments for these reforms. The business cycle has become a major problem in Western economies the continual swing between booms, periods of inflation, easy credit and imprudent expansion of businesses resulting in a massively debt-laden economy, and slumps, periods of recession, high interest rates, bankruptcies, unemployment etc. is crippling the economy. These cycles are the result of the inflation of the money supply by the banks, deficit financing on the part of government and the false climate of economic prosperity and growth that this creates. Such attempts to stimulate and control economic growth have had serious consequences that politicians and their economic gurus have not been able to predict or control. The damage inflicted upon the economy in terms of bankruptcies, unemployment etc. has been enormous. There is always a heavy price to be paid for the creation of a false climate of economic prosperity in this way since it is generated by the creation of money not by the creation of real wealth. The result, inevitably, is a period of recession in which society readjusts to the real and much slower level of economic growth that underpins the economy. The recession of the early 1990s was much longer and far deeper than politicians and economists anticipated when it first began to bite in 1989. This indicates that the real level of inflation, that is, expansion of the money supply, that prevailed throughout the 1980s, was far higher than government retail price indexes suggested. Of course, there are other problems and causes involved in the creation of such recessions, but inflation of the money supply has been the main culprit for the economic vandalism that has been inflicted upon the nation during the past half-century. But there is a further, much more damaging effect of these booms, The corruption of the price mechanism that occurs during periods of high inflation leads to the uneconomic, that is, less productive, or even unproductive and wasteful use of the available scarce resources needed for the creation of real wealth and economic growth. As a result, the capital base of the economy is not growing in proportion with the demands that society is increasingly making upon it. This trend, if it continues unchecked, will eventually lead to dire circumstances, since the constant consumption of the capital base necessary to maintain economic growth will ultimately result in the decapitalisation of society. This problem, exacerbated by a decrease in the growth of the population necessary to sustain current levels of social welfare, is already facing the nation and causing difficulties for governments of both left and right-wing parties. Examples of such difficulties include the recurring problems of funding for such essentials of welfare as healthcare and education. When the wealth finally runs out, even the semblance of a prosperous, industrialised society will be gone. Britain will find itself on the economic scrap heap that has been the lot of ex-Soviet socialist states for many years. Britain faces this scenario at the beginning of the 21st century far more keenly than most people suspect. Pan-European socialism administered by a centralised bureaucracy in Brussels will herald an economic decline for the nation that will make the recession of the early 1990s seem insignificant by comparison. If the current attempts of politicians to bring Britain into political union with the rest of socialist Europe are successful, this decline will be swift and our ability to extricate ourselves as a nation from the European economic debacle will have gone Much political ground has been covered in Britain in the process of European political assimilation over the past decade. Even a mere ten years ago, some of the proposals for European assimilation now being considered would have been unthinkable. Although these are two distinct arguments for reform of the economy, the moral and the economic, we must not think that they are totally unrelated. The world is not a product of blind impersonal forces, but the creation of a holy God. The cosmos has been created to serve a purpose, namely, to reveal and glorify God. Science studies the mechanisms of second causes and therefore describes the forces and laws of nature in terms of depersonalized cause and effect relations. This is, of course, right and proper within the narrow parameters of the scientific disciplines themselves. It was the Christian faith that freed the study of natural phenomena from the debilitating influence that animism, in its various forms, exerted for so long upon man's efforts to understand the world in which he lives. Quote, The biblical revelation of creation out of nothing, an actual historical fact, end quote, writes E. L. Hebden-Taylor, quote, provided the intellectual as well as religious conditions for the birth of modern science in Western civilization alone, end quote. Only in the cultural matrix of Western Christendom, which has been heavily influenced by the biblical worldview, has man developed quote, faith in progress, confidence in the lawfulness and rationality of the universe, appreciation of the quantitative method, and a depersonalised view of the process of motion in the universe. All qualities which are the main features of the scientific quest, in sufficient measure to make modern science possible. As a result, the natural world ceased to be seen as an irrational environment continually influenced by a myriad of divinities all exercising their will upon mankind through the elements in contrary ways, thereby controlling his destiny. Instead, it became the arena of man's dominion to be investigated, understood and exploited for the benefit of mankind and the greater glory of God. Yet we must also remember that science is an abstraction of one aspect of reality from the totality of life, which finds its ultimate purpose and meaning in the creative act of a rational, law-giving God. It is man's purpose in the whole of life to serve and honour God as Creator, Lord and Saviour. This purpose for man is to be realised in his economic life, no less than in his devotional life, and God has so ordered his creation that man might rationally, and purposefully pursue his calling and thereby bring the whole earth under the rule and government of Jesus Christ this is the meaning of the cultural mandate given to mankind at creation genesis 1 verse 28 and the great commission given by Christ to his disciples at his ascension matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 the cosmos therefore is not impersonal and the laws of nature which are simply descriptions of the mechanisms that govern second causes, are not independent, impersonal aspects of an autonomous universe. The cosmos is created by God, belongs to him, and exists in all its minutest detail to serve his purposes. It is therefore intensely personal, and all cause and effect relationships of second causes are related teleologically to the creative will of God, This is as true of economic phenomena as it is of every other kind of phenomenon in the created order. Furthermore, because the God who created the cosmos is a holy God, a righteous God, and because the cosmos is a revelation of his Godhead and exists to glorify his name, the created order is also for man an intensely moral environment. Man is also part of the created order. But like any other aspect of the created order, man is made in the image of God, and therefore all that man is, does, thinks and desires is moral in nature. Man either seeks in all things to honour God as creator and Lord, or rebels against his creator and rejects the God-created and God-ordered nature of the world in which he lives. This moral rebellion, which begins with spiritual apostasy, the rejection of God's word as authoritative, and the ultimate standard of human behaviour, man's rule of life, leads to the practical manifestation of evil throughout the whole of man's life, and in all that he touches. Wherever fallen man goes, and in whatever he does, he seeks to overturn God's created order, and impose his own fallen understanding of life, and his own sinful will upon the creation he has been given to rule over. But this rebellion can only end in frustration and failure since God's creation is a revelation of his glory and exists to serve his purposes. Man cannot overcome or negate by his sin and abuse of God's world the purpose it serves in God's creative plan. He must either submit and honour God or be crushed by a world that exists to serve God and will serve God notwithstanding man's corrupt attempts to pervert that purpose The attempt to create economic prosperity by printing money is a good example of man's desire to impose his own autonomous will upon the world in defiance of God and contrary to the clearly revealed order of creation. Men desire prosperity, but instead of pursuing this by means of honest hard work and thrift, they seek to create it as if by magic through printing paper money. This is an attempt to shortcut reality as god has created it indeed to recreate it according to man's own will wealth without effort but reality denies to man such fantasies because it exists to serve and glorify god not to satisfy the sinful desires of man money is not the source of wealth work is the source of wealth in the world that god has created a world in which man is commanded to work six days of the week Money is merely a means of exchanging the various kinds of wealth created by work. The consequences man suffers from abandoning principles of justice in economic affairs, therefore, are not merely the result of impersonal cause and effect relations on the level of second causes, but also moral consequences, the judgments of a personal and righteous God who punishes man for his wickedness and has so ordered his creation that man cannot sin with impunity. Indeed, It is because the creation reveals the glory of God and exists to serve his purposes that man cannot escape the consequences of his sin. Try as he might, man cannot escape the moral order of creation. If man is to achieve economic prosperity, therefore, he must behave with integrity in the marketplace. He must deal justly, using fair weights and measures, not seeking to benefit himself by cheating his neighbor. His pursuit of profit Economic growth and social amelioration must be based on rational principles of economic activity and in the world that God has created, a world that reveals God's creatorhood and declares his glory, those rational principles of economic activity are based on the Christian virtues of honesty, hard work and thrift. If a man would achieve economic growth and social amelioration, therefore, he must seek to transform society by pursuing the Christian ethic in all his activities. And this means pursuing economic activity according to the principles of justice and honesty set down in God's law. This involves loving one's neighbour as oneself since the Christian work ethic requires quote, the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. As we have seen, it is the capitalist system Based on the Christian work ethic, that is alone able to achieve this twofold purpose. This has been borne out by history. It is only as the Christian religion has been embraced by the Western nations and lived out in the daily lives of their peoples that the benefits of economic prosperity that we enjoy and so much take for granted in the West have become available to mankind. Modern Western society, however, is in the process of abandoning the Christian ethic, and the consequences of this have been enormous, not only in terms of morality, but in economic terms as well. This is because the economic life of man is inextricably tied up with his moral behaviour and his view of the nature and meaning of life. The answer to man's economic problems, therefore, is not simply a mechanistic change in the way he does business. Sin cannot be remedied by mere technology much as our politicians and economists are committed to the idea that it can, only as man is reformed inwardly in the heart and turns away from his sin to embrace the truth incarnate in Jesus Christ and hence his true purpose in life, will he understand the necessity of pursuing God's will in the whole course of life, including his economic life. Until men are transformed inwardly by the grace of God, they will not be able to transform their cultures nor their economies, since they will not desire to change the way they behave. Society will continue to grope around in the darkness, stumbling from one folly to the next in a moral and economic decline that becomes exponential with every crisis the nation faces. But once changed, once touched, once touched by the grace of God, that change must work itself out In the whole fabric of man's life and culture, and in every detail of his economic life, no less in church, devotional and family life. It is only as this inward transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit in men's hearts becomes a reality once again in the life of the nation, that we can expect outward transformation of our culture. But such outward transformation does not happen automatically. It must be implemented by faithful men and women seeking to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2 verse 12 It is imperative, therefore, that Christians should not view the gospel of Jesus Christ as concerned only with eternal salvation, a saved soul, and in the meantime, waste their lives. God has put man on the earth for a purpose, and he has redeemed his people that they might fulfil that purpose by dedicating themselves and their lives to God's service in the task of transforming their cultures. This transformation begins in man's heart, but it must not stop there. It must go on to manifest itself in the whole of man's life, including his economic life,